It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 791 for the 6th of May, 2022. This week, of the more than 4,700 objects in the Windows System 32 directory, about 650 are applications. Some of these are useful tools you can use to maintain a clean operating system, but which ones? In short circuits, Windows 11 offers organizational techniques that might work better than what you're doing now to find and start applications. Some Android phones can take a series of photos when they sense motion. This can be helpful, but it can also be confusing. In 20 years ago, only on the website, Compaq, the king of portable computers, was being absorbed into Hewlett-Packard in 2002. A directory inside the Windows directory contains a lot of useful functions. Perhaps you've seen System32 and wondered what's in there. To see it, of course, you'd need to wander into the Windows directory, and a lot of people don't do that, for good reason. System32 has been a part of Windows for many years, possibly from the beginning. The 32 part of the name suggests that the components are 32-bit applications, meaning they're probably not new, although some of them are. Maybe you wonder, what do those files do? If you look in System32, you will find more than 4,700 files and folders. There are PNG image files, dynamic link library files, some settings files, control panel components, some Visual Basic files, a few XML documents, and more than 600 application files with EXE extensions. It's the EXE files we're interested in. The System32 directory is inside the Windows directory. You can find it with the Windows File Explorer, but I prefer to use Qtr because of its ability to filter the files that are shown. Here's how the filtering works. You'd start by clicking the Filter Highlight icon in the Qtr directory. Check the example image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Then you'd type star.exe in the text box to limit the display to just application files. Click the selector at the right of the text box and choose Be a Filter from the drop-down list, and then the number of visible objects will drop from more than 4,700 to around 650. And since we're now in the System32 directory, take care. Avoid wandering around and just randomly clicking executable files to see what they do. Compare this to wandering through a big box store, opening random containers, and drinking the contents. You might consume a tasty ale, or perhaps an apple juice, of course, but you might find that you have consumed toilet bowl cleaner or furniture polish. All of these have uses and are fine when used properly, but the consequences may be severe when they're misused. And also take care not to rename, delete, or edit any of the files in the System32 directory. Use Google or DuckDuckGo and ask what is the file name. Let's say I've seen ALG.exe, and I wonder what it is. Might it be an algebra tutor? Well, no. ALG.exe is the application layer gateway service, a Windows component. It is required if you use a third-party firewall or internet connection sharing to connect to the internet. 
It's not an application you'll want to run just to see what it does. It's unlikely to cause any harm, and in fact it may already be running, but it certainly won't do anything helpful. An even better resource is Microsoft's documentation site. I have a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. There you can search for the System32 applications. Not all of the applications are documented there, though, so a search engine is sometimes the only resource. Also, not all of the applications in System32 can be run by double-clicking them. Or perhaps more accurately, double-clicking them may not provide any useful response because they're intended to be used from the command line. Take clip.exe, for example. It redirects the command output from a command line to the Windows clipboard. You'd use it to copy data directly into an application that can receive text from the clipboard. You can also paste this text output into other programs. So this is a good time to say that the name of the command doesn't always accurately describe what it does. This might in part be because most of the applications comply with the old DOS 8.3 file naming convention. Remember that? The name of a file, no longer than eight characters. The extension, three characters, no more. As you look around, you'll find familiar files in System32, such as checkdisk.exe. It's used to analyze a disk for errors. Dialer.exe is the antique component that can dial a phone number if you have a phone line connected to the computer. You probably don't. FTP.exe is the built-in file transfer protocol application. Fondue.exe won't cook a tasty meal for you, though. It's the Windows feature-on-demand user experience component. It also won't do much if you just double-click it. If you've ever used the Event Viewer by pressing the Windows key, typing Event, and then selecting the Event Viewer app, eventviewer.exe is what Windows located and launched for you. It's in the System32 directory. Likewise, the old-style control panel, control.exe. There's even finger.exe and... No, it's not a gesture to make when the computer is misbehaving. It's the TCP IP finger command, which has been around since 1977. It's intended to provide information about a particular user on a Unix operating system. It's likely that most computer users will never encounter finger. So let's consider some of the components that are useful, maybe even functions that you've used, but you never knew where they were located. PSR.exe is one of the most useful components in System32. It's the Problem Steps Recorder, and it's one way for you to share information when something goes wrong with your computer. I prefer using an application such as Aero Admin to share the screen or to view someone else's screen live, but the Problem Steps Recorder watches what you do when you set it to record, captures screenshots for each action you take, and bundles all of the information into a single compressed file that you can share with a technician. CareMap.exe, C-H-A-R-M-A-P, is one System32 application you may already have encountered. Many of the typefaces included with or added to Windows include more than the standard 255 ASCII characters. If you need to use one of those characters, the Character Map application displays them and provides a way to copy and paste them into a word processor or other program. Signature Verify, S-I-G-V-E-R-I-F dot E-X-E, is the signature verification application. It's one you won't use unless you suspect malware has made its way onto your computer. It checks the validity of device drivers. 
Device drivers are small programs that control or help operate a hardware device. They are essential, but they're also the source of many problems. So SigVerify.exe was added to Windows 7. It allowed users to confirm that the device drivers are signed. Running SigVerify.exe will examine all device drivers. Ideally, the result will be a message that all device drivers have been signed. But the more likely result will be a list of drivers that have not been digitally signed. If you suspect a problem with drivers that have been installed by malware, this is a really good starting point. DXDiag.exe, D-X-D-I-A-G. That's a tool that collects information about devices to help troubleshoot problems with DirectX sound and video. DirectX has been around since 1996. It gives games and other applications that need it low-level access to the computer's video and audio hardware. Starting with Windows 95, Microsoft restricted access to hardware directly to improve security. And that meant that games could no longer interact with low-level hardware features. To restore access, Microsoft introduced DirectX. If you suspect problems with DirectX, dxdiag.exe provides information about all of the input and output devices. This information can be saved to a file and provided to a support technician. Calc.exe is the built-in calculator function. There are automatic functions for currency, volume and length conversions, as well as settings to switch between standard, scientific, graphing, and programming versions. There's even a handy date calculator that tells me I'm a little over 27,000 days old. It's actually quite a useful application. MDSCHED.exe, Memory Diagnostics Scheduler. When a computer behaves erratically, the root cause might be failing memory. A computer that crashes with a blue screen, hangs, freezes, or reboots without warning probably has a hardware problem of some sort. The memory diagnostic scheduler is what you call for then. Because the computer's memory can't be tested when an operating system is running, the computer needs to be rebooted. The test can be run immediately, which does require an immediate reboot, or scheduled to run the next time you start the computer. The memory diagnostic thoroughly tests the computer's RAM to identify any problems. Take a look at MMC.exe. It's a utility for building a computer management console. Perhaps you've already used the predefined console and you've wished that other Windows management tools were present or that tools you never use were absent. The solution is MMC. You can use it to define a management console with exactly the tools you want to have. FC.exe is an application you run from the command line. It compares the contents of two files or sets of files and displays the differences between them. To find out how to use it, at the command line, type FC space forward slash question mark. And although I prefer to use Arrow Admin, MSRA is a built-in screen sharing utility in Windows that allows a remote computer user to see another computer user's screen. MSinfo32.exe gathers information about the computer. It displays a comprehensive view of hardware, system components, and software environment. This kind of information is really helpful in diagnosing problems. To share the results with a technician, export the information to an NFO file or a text file. Last and certainly not least, there is shrpubw.exe. It can be really helpful if you had a problem sharing a drive on your home network. 
I saved this one for last because it needs a bit more explanation. It's not uncommon for somebody to get one or more of the settings wrong when trying to set up a shared directory manually on a network. The wizard even takes care of firewall settings, which is the most common cause of failures. The user needs to provide the location of the directory that's to be shared. If the directory already exists, you can use the Browse button to locate it, or to create a new directory, just fill in its location, such as, for example, e colon backslash public share, which will create the directory public share on drive E. Then fill in the share name. I used public share. Clever, huh? And write a description. Again, being really clever, I called it Bill's public directory. The next step involves determining what permissions users will have. Read only for everyone. Full access for administrators and read only access for others full access for administrators and no access for others, or customized permissions. As you work through the process, be sure to take note of the share path. This is what other users on your home network will need to gain access to the directory. After specifying the share path, users need to enter a username and a password that has already been defined on the computer where the shared directory is located. Clicking Remember My Credentials will save the username and password so that future access will be automatic. And it's also wise for the user to add that shared location to the Favorites section of the Windows File Explorer. That eliminates the need to type that long share path each time. The Windows System32 directory houses a lot of useful functions. Just keep in mind my earlier caution and don't run one of the applications just to see what it'll do. Find out what it does first, and then proceed. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, from the looks of the physical desktop beside my primary computer, you might be surprised to learn that I'm a stickler for a clean Windows desktop. That puts me at the diametrically opposed end of the spectrum from those who have an icon for every installed application on the computer, along with links to websites and documents, all of them on their desktop. There's nothing wrong with either extreme or with any spot in the middle. I maintain a fairly busy taskbar, even though Windows 11 means I can no longer have more than 100 icons there. The taskbar now has about 40 icons, and I may eliminate some of those because Windows 11, along with Microsoft Power Toys, offers better options. Those 100-plus icons I kept on the taskbar previously were small, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, but it was fairly common for me to spend way too much time trying to locate the appropriate icon for an application that I used infrequently. Besides severely limiting the number of icons on the taskbar after installing Windows 11, I also eliminated nearly all of the icons on the desktop. 
The recycle bin is present, of course, and I keep a link to the GoodSync Explorer. I do that because it allows me to view remote locations that are linked via GoodSync. There are also three links to command files, one to reboot the computer, one to shut down the computer, and one to abort the reboot or shutdown process. There's also a folder with links to several utilities that I use frequently, and one JPEG file I keep on the desktop simply because it's a good example of a graphic intended to illustrate a process. Otherwise, the desktop is bare. The Patch My PC utility runs every day to keep 40 or so utility programs up to date, and it is set to delete any desktop icons that updated utilities may create. When other application updates, such as those for Adobe Creative Cloud, put icons on the desktop, I delete them immediately. And just to be sure that the few icons allowed on the desktop stay where I put them, I run Desktop OK each time the computer is booted. If something has been moved, Desktop OK puts it right back where it belongs. As I said at the outset, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of icons on the desktop, and I'm not trying to convince anybody that there's a better way. But there is a better way for me. The better way involves the Windows 11 Start menu and the PowerToys Run feature that I described in mid-April in a longer piece about PowerToys in general. Part 1 is the revamped Windows Start menu. Apps that are pinned to the Start menu can be moved around easily so that the ones you use the most will be on the first screen. I have three screens of pinned apps. That's around 45 applications. As with previous versions of Windows, recently used apps and files, along with any app that's been installed recently, will appear in the recommended list at the bottom. If you don't care for the recommended section, you can remove it. Just go to Settings, Personalization, Start Page, and turn off Show Recently Added Apps, turn off Show Most Used Apps, and turn off Show Recently Opened Items in Start, Jump Lists, and File Explorer. Unfortunately, that does not allow the Pinned Apps section to expand, so there's just a large blank area at the bottom. A hint to Microsoft. Fix that. Part 2 is PowerToys Run. When this feature is active, pressing Alt-Spacebar opens a dialog box. You can type part of an application's name there. To run Affinity Designer, for example, I could type AFF to get a list of all the Affinity applications, or I could type Design to get a list of all applications with design in their names. After you do that, if the application you want to run is highlighted, you can start it by just pressing Enter. If not, use the arrow keys to position the highlight and then press Enter, or use the mouse to click the application that you want to run. I have maintained a clean desktop for a long time, but even those who have filled their desktops with every installed application might find value in using some of these techniques, either with a clean desktop or a cluttered desktop. It's not about right or wrong. It's about what works best for you. Cameras in mobile phones are simply amazing. They can take still photos. They can create videos. Some can even figure out which pixels form the foreground image and then blur the pixels that form the background part of the image. 
Android's Top Shot feature creates a series of photos when it detects motion and then lets the user pick the best one. Sometimes this can get in the way. Many Android phones switch from picture mode to video mode when the user holds down the shutter button. If you get a series of photos instead of an individual image at other times, that's probably Top Shot. The feature can be turned off if you want to. The feature, and even its presence, will vary depending on the phone's manufacturer, the model of the phone, and even the installed version of Android. It's present in the Android Photo app and may or may not be present in other photo apps that you've installed. But enough warnings and weasel words about maybe. Here's how to find out if it's present and how to enable it or disable it. With the Photo app open, tap the gear icon at the top left. This will open your settings menu. Choose the top shot setting that you prefer. Off, meaning the feature is never used. Auto, meaning the feature is used when the application senses motion. And on, meaning the feature is always enabled. When the camera app has created a series of images, it will initially appear as a short video. Tap the three vertical dots in the upper right corner of the screen to open the information panel. Tiny thumbnails in a ribbon will show the shots in the photo. To see them full size, tap the ribbon. One image will be shown as the one that the app recommends. Another may be shown as the original image. But the user can then scroll through the images, make another choice, and save that option as the photo to use. There's just one topic to scroll through in 20 years ago, only on the website. In 2002, Compaq, the king of portable computers, was being absorbed into Hewlett-Packard. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>